Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn to Isaiah chapter 48, Isaiah 48, and we're, we're nearing the incredible, really what is the Mount Everest of all prophecies, as Harry Ironsides called it, uh, the, the prophecies of Messiah contained in chapters 52 and 53. But before we get there, the Lord is establishing himself as one who can speak these things. And to tonight he speaks of the restoration of Israel, and he does so at the end of this chapter. But in order to establish his authority to be able to say the things he's going to say at the end, he tells us in the beginning again who it is that's speaking and why he has the right through the prophet Isaiah. As Isaiah writes these words, he's writing for the Lord. He's prophesying in that sense why he would be able to say these things. And so as it begins with chapter 48, and we'll continue all the way really through about chapter 54, we we begin to see God establishing, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, and this is why I have the right to do it. And the reason this is important, I, I can, I think, modernize it for you. If I were to come to your house and knock on the door. Let's pretend it's, it's pre-COVID and neither of us need a mask. And I just knock on your door and say, hi, um, I'm the king of the universe and I'd like to bless you with $100 billion. Uh, the moment I couldn't make good on that promise, you would probably figure out I'm not the king of the universe. Amen? I'd need to be able to deposit the $100 billion in your bank account for you to believe that I am who I say I am. And in the same way, God's going to give information that validates who he is. He's going to speak into the the lives of the Jewish people who at the time are known as Israelites. They're of the tribe of Jacob. They're of the 12 tribes that would stem from him, collectively known as Israel. And so God is going to tell them these things so that he can speak to them very directly. And in the same way, he speaks to us very directly about our lives that we live before the Lord. So would you pray with me? And we'll pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 48. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you. You are who you are. And Lord, we thank you that one day you are going to restore national Israel to a right relationship with you. But you're going to do that the same way you've done it with each of us who knows you personally and how you've done with the Jewish people one by one throughout the ages. Lord, by righteousness. Not just simple truth, but in righteousness. And so, Lord, we ask you to speak to us tonight through your word. We give you our attention. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, hear this, O house of Jacob. And we'll delve into this in a moment. So he's kind of reverting back to saying, I want to remind you who you used to be, who are called by the name Israel. And so two names, two very different connotations. Jacob being the heel catcher, the schemer, the deceiver, the conniver, the liar. 
and Israel being the man governed by God. This is you used to be nothing more than the sons of Jacob, and now you're called Israel, people who are governed by God, and have come forth from the wellspring of Judah. Now, the wellspring was always believed to be the fountainhead or the, the head uh, of a particular tributary. If you, we'd call it the source uh, of a tributary. If you were to go and try and find the headwaters of the Colorado River, you'd have to go high into the Rocky Mountains. There's a place literally on the Continental Divide where raindrops falling on one side of the ridge uh, end up in the Platte River and flow down through Colorado and into Nebraska. And on the other side flows into the Colorado and ultimately down into the Sea of Cortez. So it all depends on where that water comes from as to where its source is. That's the picture here. And have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? So it's speaking of the messianic lineage. That's how you're going to come into this right relationship who swear by the name of the Lord. Remember where the children of Israel are being spoken to. Uh, They're going to go into captivity in Babylon, and in essence, this is kind of speaking of the Babylonian captivity uh, ahead of its time, but they're they're going to go into captivity. And they're not going to swear by the Lord. They're actually going to swear by the Babylonians. They're going to carve little idols. They're going to worship foreign gods. They're going to get very comfortable. And in fact, the prophet Jeremiah told them to get comfortable. You're going to be there for a long time. Build houses. Have yourselves families because you're not getting out of there anytime soon. But you are still going to swear by the name of the Lord. Make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth and in righteousness. Now, this is a picture for us in our day. There are a lot of people that call themselves Christians that are Christians uh, that we would say are simply in name only. They use the name, but they don't live the life. And that's always been a problem with God's people. There are people who know the truth of God's word, but don't do it. There are people who know of the righteousness of God, but fail to heed it. And so God is is speaking to them here in verse 1, really to remind them of the terse counsel of Jeremiah the prophet. There in Jeremiah 29, uh, before he gets to that passage that you all know in verse 11, he's saying, look, uh, your, your plans are going to be a future and a hope, but you're going to be here, so settle down for these 50 years. Build some houses, build gardens, do the things you're going to do. And, and what happened to them during that time, is, as Isaiah prophetically speaks of that time, as God had allowed them to be taken captive, they got comfortable in their captivity. And a lot of people who walk with the Lord initially end up getting comfortable not being in the truth and not being in righteousness and being in captivity, going back to bondage, back into a life that is filled with the things that God has delivered us from. One of the things that happens as we give our life to Christ is we're a new creation in Christ Jesus, amen? The old things are passing away. Present tense active. It's an ongoing process that we call sanctification. Our lives are being, in essence, uh, cleaned up moment by moment, day by day, as God deals with things in our lives. But the Jewish people who had been God's people, who had wandered in the wilderness, who knew what it was like 
to see God literally do miracles and provide for them in miraculous ways, had gone into the land of promise, into Canaan, they'd lived lives, and they'd forgotten who God was. And so God allowed them to be taken in captivity. Whenever you forget who God is, you can almost count at some point in time, God is going to allow you to be taken captive by something so that you will once again cry out to him. This is almost always how God works. Now, he doesn't have to, but because of our stubbornness, just like we're going to see in the life of the children of Israel, because of our hard-headedness, God has to use measures that are equivalent to the amount of stagnation that we have in our lives towards the things of God. When you go stagnant in your relationship with the Lord, the Lord allows things in your life so that you are now uncomfortable and you go, Lord, what happened? Why is it like this? If you remember our study in Daniel, and as you would uh, study with the ladies and go through the book of Nehemiah, and as you read the book of Ezra, which is the companion to the book of Nehemiah, and you see how the children of Israel are going to be taken back into the land. As they're taken back into the land, it, it wasn't all good things that they experienced in captivity, and it would not be immediately good when they went back into the land. It was going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. They were going to whine over what the temple looked like compared to its former glory. And so God, I think, is preparing us, much as he did the Israelites. God's people, as they went into captivity, we've kind of been in captivity for the last year, amen? It's like you go outside of your house and, you know, one of your neighbors looks at you and goes, what are you doing? Don't get near me. I don't know if you guys have those people in your neighborhood, but We've got a few of them. It's like, where are they going to get back? You know, like we're supposed to be shouting unclean wherever we go or something, you know. Unclean, unclean. But they were told to eventually flee the Chaldeans, to leave Babylon. They were going to get out of captivity. The question is, what are you going to do when you get out of captivity? Are you going to learn the lesson? Or is God going to have to teach you that lesson over again? And what had happened to the children of Israel, I think, is important for us tonight. You can become very comfortable in bondage. When you begin to give your life over to things that are not supposed to be in the life of a believer, and whether that's speaking of the Jewish people as a picture of the church or the church itself today, when you allow yourself to go back into captivity, and in a, in a modern sense, in our day and time, that would be us going back to the things we've been delivered from. When you do that, you can get very comfortable in that sin. We would call that complacent in that sin. And sometimes that sin is comfort. Sometimes that sin is affluence. And the mark of a believer, really to a very large degree, is for us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus. Amen? Life of a believer is not exactly easy all the time. It's also not hard all the time. It isn't burdensome all the time. But it is always a cross-walk life. We're always caring about the burdens of the Lord Jesus, as the Apostle Paul said. 
And so I think what the Lord would remind us tonight before we move on is of this beautiful name, Israel. Governed by God. What does that really mean to us? It means that we're going to be the servants of God. It means that God's going to be first in our lives and everything else will be underneath our relationship with him. That, in effect, is what governed means. You have someone over you that establishes how you're going to live in that particular time and culture, and we would say that is our government. They are over us, and they dictate how we live our lives. In this case, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were were given this beautiful name. You are governed by me. I'm the one that's ruling you. I'm the one that's over you. I'm the one that's touching you. And if you remember back in Genesis 32 when we studied that book, uh, Jacob was left alone and he, he wrestles, right, with the man until the breaking of day and finally realizes who this is. It's the angel of the Lord. It's almost assuredly Jesus. Uh, and he's wrestling. And if it's not, it's definitely a cherubim or a seraphim. It's a powerful angel. And finally, Jacob has his hip thrown out of joint. You know, it's kind of like some of us who were old. We walk down stairs and our hips go out, our knees go. It's like he's got this permanent limp now from wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And finally, Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go. He grabs hold of the angel and says, you're not getting out of here until you bless me. You remember what the blessing was? Well, your name, what is it? And Jacob has to answer. He says, it's Yaakov. It's heel catcher. It's deceiver. It's schemer. It's conniver. It will not be so going forward. You'll no longer be called Jacob. You shall be called Israel. Governed by God. That was the blessing. That was the blessing he got. It is a blessing to be governed by God. In our walks with the Lord, it would be to be seeing Jesus and living as though Jesus is who he says he is. He is both Savior, he saves us, and he is also Lord, Master. He governs us. That's a blessing. You see, all the time before that, Jacob had lived by his wits, by his, you know, scheming. And unfortunately, I think in the church, we, we have a lot of people that still kind of want to hang on to the Jacob that's in them. They still kind of want to scheme and plan and plot and hang on to their old things. You know, it's amazing to me how many people called themselves Christians and you can certainly see this in our political arena right now. You have all, all manner of people calling themselves Christians, but you look at their life and there's nothing Christian about it. God is not interested in us being name-only Christians. He's interested in us being Christians who bear the governance of God with seriousness. We say, Lord, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing for me today when I get up is you govern my life. You lead me. You guide me. 
You take me beside the still waters. You lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. It's that way that I'll fear no evil. But if I go by myself, if you're not governing me, God, then I'm in trouble. The children of Israel had forgotten that. They'd forgotten that God wanted to be their Lord, their master. And to that end, I think the warning for us, if there's a warning here, if we take the name, we need to live the life, amen? If I'm going to take the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I'm going to allow myself to be called a Christian, then I have an obligation to live a life that is indicative of his lordship. And people want to say, well, that's, that's good. You know, that's, that's kind of harsh. Pastor Jeff, what are you saying? What I'm saying is, if you're a Christian, you should be known for living like one. You can't keep the name and then act like a heathen. Too many people do that in this world, and that's why people get confused about who Jesus is. As I've shared with you many times, one of the main reasons that people give for not wanting to be a Christian is Christians. They look at how Christians act what they claim to be and then what they do and it doesn't match. And they go, why would I want to be that? I can be the sinner that they are all, because I'm already that. Where's the difference? And so we get a picture of what not to do or be. Verse 2, for they call themselves after the holy city. They declared that their capital was Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God, by the way. They said, our capital is Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David. The city of Jerusalem is the city of King David, revered. And lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. But notice that what he's saying. He says, will you call yourselves that? But is that really true? God then defines who he is through the prophet. I have declared the former things from the beginning. And so they went forth from my mouth because I caused them to hear it. And suddenly I did them. They came to pass. Because I knew that you were, check this out, obstinate. Your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze. In other words, stubborn and stiff-necked. They were rigid in, in the fact that they weren't going to allow God to actually change them. They took the name but didn't live the life. You don't want to be, you don't want God declaring that you're stubborn because he won't put up with it forever. Anybody here figured out that God knows exactly how to bust your obstinance? To, to break down your stubborn attitudes? To make you realize that actually you're not in charge of the universe? And I think most of us that have walked with the Lord for a while have Learned that lesson probably more than once. God wants to be who he declares himself to be, and he is Lord. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. 
Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. He'd spoken to them through the prophet Jeremiah. They knew that they were going to be in Babylon. They also knew that they were going to be delivered from the Assyrians. God had told them all these things. And they're going, oh, it won't happen to us. We'll, we'll make a pact with Sennacherib, the, the Syrian general. It'll be okay. No, it's not going to be okay. No, we're not going to Babylon. God would never let that happen to us. We're his people. You're going to Babylon. You don't want God to have to teach you this lesson. Lest you should say, here's why God told them those things before they happened. And this is a sound word to us tonight. Because there might be some of us that have a tendency to think that we're smarter than God. That what his word says doesn't apply to us. That even though it says it, we don't need to do it. That that we can just kind of keep our own set of rules and God will just bless our rules. Lest you should say, middle of verse 5, my idol has done them. My carved image and my molded image have commanded them. God told them what was going to happen so that when it happened, they could go, God told me that was going to happen. Let me tell you how this works out in your own personal life. When you read the word of God and it plainly declares a truth to you, that settles it from God's perspective. And so when God tells you that the end of those things is going to be death, because that's what sin does, it always destroys. When he tells you these things are areas of our life we need to be careful of, he's not telling you because he doesn't like you. He's telling you because he loves you. He's letting you know those things so that when the bad stuff happens, you can go, God told me so. It worked out exactly how God said it would. I cannot tell you the the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that I've talked to in decades of ministry that will look me right in the eye and go, well, yeah, that's great. I know it says that, but it won't happen to me. Be some relational thing, something in marriage, some habit, some business deal where they need to be uh, less than truthful. They think that not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever means, well, as long as the the unbelievers, you know, you can actually say they're evil, but if it's not an evil unbeliever, well, that unbeliever I can be yoked to. I can't even tell you how many times I've had people come back, well, you know, the Bible was right. Well, yeah, the Bible's always right. So God's qualifying who he is. He's speaking to them, saying, look, I don't want you to think when these things happen that you look to your little gods that you carved yourself and go, see, my God did it. I want you to know I did it. It was me all the time. And this is a lesson you do not want God to have to teach you more than once. Because he very often cranks up the severity of the situation each time he has to reteach us a lesson. Verse 6 You've heard. See all this? And will you not declare it? It's like, look, I told you. You watched it happen. Are you now going to make sure that you tell everybody the truth? Are you going to keep on your little game where you try and defend your own position in this? Are you going to live up to what I'm telling you? I've made you hear new things from this time. Even hidden things. You did not know them. He said, look, did I not tell you things that came to pass 
that you did not know. And they came to pass exactly as I said they would. I spoke through my prophets. I'm telling you those things for a reason. I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith in me. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day, you have not heard of them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. So he gives them the human side of this. He says, from my side, I don't want you thinking your little God did it. And from your side, I don't want you thinking you knew it. It's so important in the life of every believer that we rest and trust in the Lord. Because if we don't trust him, if we don't believe him for what he says, if I don't believe what Genesis 1-1 declares, then why would I believe what John 3.16 says? If I don't believe the creation account, if I don't believe what Isaiah has already said and what he's going to say in just a moment here in Isaiah 48 about who God is, that he actually created me and everything in the universe. If I don't believe that, that is foundational to you understanding who's in charge. Because otherwise you do what all humanists do, people who have man at the center of everything, is you believe you control your own destiny. You might even believe that you created you. You might believe that you're an accident. You might believe you got here by you know, just random processes over millions, if not billions of years. So it is super important that we understand that God wants us to think correctly about him. Surely you did not know, verse 8. Surely you did not know, you did not hear. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called transgressors from the womb. He's basically saying, look, you you knew how this would turn out. I told you how it was going to go. You just wouldn't listen. And for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. For my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. He's saying, you know who I am. You know what I've done. You, You know that I've been sustaining you all this time. And yet you refuse to acknowledge that. You've been hard-headed. And he basically says, look, it's my mercy and grace that you're still here. It's my goodness, it's my kindness, it's my gentleness that's allowed you to continue to exist. One of the amazing things about us as believers today and, and the children of Israel in the times of the Old Testament is that God just didn't start over. One of the most amazing things to me is when I look at my, my life, the lives of the Jewish people, it's like, why didn't God just make new people? Why didn't you just start over? Why? Because he loves us. He actually loves us. He created us. He doesn't give up easy. But he's not short of measures to get our attention and to straighten us out either. Behold, I have refined you, verse 10 says, but not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. That's why he says, look, this is all going to come together in, in your affliction. You're going to understand this as you go through these trials. And 
I've spent a lot of time lately just talking to people about the things they're going through. You know, it's interesting because there's really two different types of people right now in the church. There's a type of people that recognize that out of all of this fiery affliction and trial that we're going through right now, we absolutely have the potential to come out of the other side of it better than we went in. There's those people. That God's refining us and trying us and allowing us to go through stuff that I've never been through before. There's no, I, I, I actually looked, I actually typed in how to handle a pandemic. You know there's no book on that. Especially as a pastor, there isn't one. There's new things. There's things that God's delivered us from. There's things that he's doing in our lives that are new and fresh and unique. And we would never have experienced them except in the crucible of affliction. And so God is reminding us, look, there's value if you want to see value, but there's the other side. There's the people that look at these things and go, either God doesn't exist or God is mad at us or God doesn't care. Those people don't learn anything when they get into the crucible of affliction. And in fact, they very often force God to turn the heat up in the furnace because God's trying to speak into our lives. He doesn't allow us to be persecuted for no reason. He doesn't allow us to go through these difficult things so that he can just sit up in heaven and go, man, this is great, look at him suffer. And yet a lot of people think that's how God sees them. It's like somehow God delights in our misery. He hates it when his kids are miserable. But he also knows at times it's necessary. So he does allow us to go through things that's for our own benefit. It's actually going to be a blessing ultimately. And so I would encourage you to look for the blessings behind this buffeting that we're going through right now. I think sometimes we're just not careful about what we say and think about who God is. And I know people in the world don't think that way. Kind of, we're having a conversation this morning just, you know, kind of about the direction the country's going. Look, anyone that thinks that the United States of America is a Christian nation is foolish. We do not have a Christian nation. We have a lot of Christians in our nation, but we do not have a Christian nation. Most of the people in the United States of America are not Christians. They may even say that they are, but their works say different. And furthermore, our government is not a government of Christianity. It has a basis, a moral mooring even, in Judeo-Christian ethic. It has a basis in the Ten Commandments to some degree. Our legal system certainly does. But we're not a Christian nation. And so when you put your hope and your trust in the nation instead of in the Lord, you're going to be disappointed as a Christian. Because a vast majority of the laws that we have have nothing to do with God's plan for the world. God hates divorce, and yet divorce is legal. God doesn't want us to be debased of our mind, and yet Alcohol and drugs, many of them, are legal. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, yet we go into war sometimes unjustly. Those are not things that God wants us to do, and yet we do them as a nation. 
And the reason I'm drawing your attention to this is don't confuse who's Lord and who's the government. Because they are two different entities and they have two different purposes. The government's purpose is primarily safety. The health and welfare of its citizens. That's his primary function. Your Lord governs your soul, your actions, the way you think. And so if you get those two things confused, then pretty soon you start worshiping the wrong God. Now all of a sudden, maybe some type of political bent becomes your God. Be careful. There's only room for one God. There's only room for one Lord. And until every single person in the United States becomes a Christian, including every single person that's in our government, and all of our systems are cleansed of anything that's ungodly, that's not the place to worship. You've got to worship at the throne of the king. And so notice what it says in verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. There's only one God. There's only one God. And we should not be hanging Jesus or de facto hanging God himself on someone else and go, that's my God. I have a God. I have a Lord. I have a Savior. I have the Spirit of the living God dwelling in me. And I need to leave God God and worship God that way. And so really, this principle is the same principle that we find Jesus' words, to whom much is given, much is required. To sin against the light, you might say, is far worse than just sinning in ignorance. And when we know what God expects of us, he wants us to do exactly that. For he who did the will of God will not suffer many stripes you see what Jesus was getting at when he said those things, and I think this is for us maybe something to remember. We saw this back in Luke chapter 12. For unto whom much is given, much is required, right? When we know Jesus is Lord, we know there's only one God, and we go off on some tangent and try and make something else our focus. And we remove God, we become like people that don't know God. We start to worship false gods. We, we start to hang the Jesus hat on something else or someone else. Who are these people that Isaiah is speaking to? God is speaking to through Isaiah is really the best way to look at it. Who is God speaking to through the prophet Isaiah? He's speaking to Israel. Who's Israel? his very own chosen people. And notice what the message is. 
make sure that you worship me and that you don't have any other gods before me because I don't want to share my glory with anybody. These people have begun to worship Baal and Molech, Mammon, the gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Chaldeans. And in a very similar way, today we worship a lot of other things. And people get caught up in it. We allow humanism to creep in. Scientific endeavor to creep in, creative genius to creep in, politics to creep in. And before you know it, you can't be a Christian unless you hold this political view. Or you can't be a Christian unless you hold this scientific view. You can't be a Christian unless you hold this set of moral views. God defines what it means to be a Christian. He does that with his word. He doesn't give that glory to anyone else. He doesn't give it to intellect. He doesn't give it to politics. He alone wants to be Lord. He alone wants to be God. And so what does he say? Verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. Notice how he differentiates there. You can still be kind of Jacob-ish and Israel... That's my real people, the ones who are governed by God. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. And indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. So why is he saying this? Again, he's qualifying who he is. He's saying, I made the earth and everything on it. Uh, He's differentiating between everyone else on the planet and himself. And my right hand was stretched out with the heavens. And when I call to them, they all stand up together. In other words, God is saying, look, when I command the stars to sing, they sing. When I ask the planets to move, they move. That's why the book of Revelation declares the same truth, by the way. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am he who was and is and is to come. I'm the one who's always been. And so God is saying, I laid the foundations of the earth. Where were you when that happened? I'm the one that stretched out the heavens. Where were you when that happens? You see, when you start thinking about this, God's really saying, look, I created you. You're not the evidence of billions of years of time and lots of random chance processes over those billions of years. I created the earth. I created the stars. I created the universe itself. I created you. And I care about you. You're not an accident. If you have the app and you happen to be looking at the next slide, I have listed eight books there that I encourage those of you who want to do some deeper study into the science of cosmology, comparing what we would call a creation narrative of cosmogony, specifically origins, 
and actual science, then these books are for you. Signature in the Cell by Dr. Stephen C. Meyer is a huge work, 700 and almost 800 pages. Darwin's Doubt, same guy. Evidence that Demands a Verdict, which is a compilation by Dr. Josh McDowell and his son, Sean. The Harvest Handbook of Apologetics by Joe Holden, who's the general editor of that. Darwin's Black Box by Dr. Michael Behe. Men of Science, Men of God. So you can look back at the history of what we would call science, very specifically physical sciences, and see how many of the originators of the scientific theories that we hold to be true were actually people who believed in God. They weren't atheists. And so you can read through some of those things. But I can tell you this as someone who's been around in in the transition between Darwinism being taught in almost every level of school, from high school all the way through college as an absolute fact, to now there's some very serious doubt. And that serious doubt is based on scientific fact. That you are not an accident. Especially in the study of paleoanthropology, if you were to, you know, simply go back through even 25 years ago. I had a conversation with a couple of doctors that were writing a book and they actually asked to to speak to me because they had watched something I'd done online. They said, well, we want to kind of see what a creationist thinks. I said, sure. They said, well, what do you do with all the evidence that we have of, of human evolution? I said, would you like to tell me what that evidence is? And so they went through things like Ramapithecus and, you know, they conveniently left out Piltdown Man, which was the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on humankind as far as an archaeological discovery or a paleontological, uh, anthropological discovery. Ended up being pig bones that were stained with tea. And they went through all these things and I said, I just have really one thing I'd like to talk to you about. Because you believe that Australopithecus afarensis, this thing that Mary Leakey supposedly found in the Old Divide Gorge in Kenya, you, you, you think that that's where we came from. And I asked him a simple question, and this was the question. If you found one bone, why are there not hundreds of thousands of skeletons all over the globe because you found those bones on the surface of the dirt. They were not buried. They were laying on the surface, and they were still there. So can you tell me why there are not hundreds of thousands of those fossils all over the globe? Every continent, because mankind is spread out, according to you, onto every continent except for Antarctica. He said, well, we're just waiting for the information to come in. I said, what, what are you waiting for? I said, well, you know, we have Nebraska man and Cro-Magnon man and Homo habilis and Neanderthals and Australopithecus and all the units. I said, they're all the same thing. They're incomplete skeletons. 
of people that ultimately look exactly like human beings or they look exactly like apes, monkeys. They're one or the other. Well, yeah, but we just think that there's... there's I said, you just think? And they got kind of indignant about it, which I don't blame them for doing that because I was kind of being condescending, actually. And I said... That's it. You just explained the whole thing. You think that something's missing. And because you think something's missing, I'm supposed to believe that what you think is missing is truth. What if I don't believe that what you think is missing is truth? How is that then science? And they said, well, it's still the best theory we have. I said, no, it's not. And so we went round and round for about an hour, actually. And they were very nice, by the way. And I said, so in the end, you rely on things like carbon dating, and they start, yeah, oh yeah, well, we need to do this. And I said, well, what happened when we came up with the accelerator mass spectrometer to where we can now look at you know, the carbon that's in these, and we can be so precise that if we actually carry out your thinking that every bit of carbon-14 in the entire universe should have disappeared in about one and a half million years, and yet you say the universe is 13.8 billion years old, you can't have it both ways. So the reason I'm sharing this with you is this is the stuff that traps people. They go, here's a really smart person who wrote a really huge book, and this really huge book says God doesn't exist. This book says God does exist, and he created everything. Nobody's ever proven that that's wrong, by the way. That, in a sense, is a competing theory with Darwinian evolution or evolution in general. They're just two competing theories. Which one has the most science backing it up? A very specific creation does. Because of the amount of order, because of the structure of the universe, because things that we look at as processes, we're able to actually simply reverse engineer. We can look at stuff that we see right now and we can try and extrapolate what happened in the distant past, but that's not science. That's a very educated guess. The reason I'm telling you these things is God is qualifying here who he is. I created the universe and everything in it. I'm telling you who I am. I want you to trust me with that. I want you to listen up in essence. Now, you can think maybe you're going to get sucked into a black hole eventually and the universe, you know, somehow recontract, get sucked back into this incredible thing that is driven primarily by gravitation and then a new universe will get created. Or maybe you can buy into the multiverse theory now that there are multiple parallel universes that exist everywhere. You can do all those things or you can take God at his word. who spoke to the Israelites and said, this is what's going to happen. And it happened. Who spoke of his son, Jesus, who would come 
And exactly as he said it would happen, it happened. But as you look at the universe that we have today and you examine what the Bible does say, because it doesn't say everything. It gives us a framework to understand that there was a global catastrophism that happened, that the world was made over, and that before that there were a certain set of things that were governing the universe, at least here on earth. And after that, things were radically changed. The Bible plainly declares it. The earth was destroyed by flood. Peter would echo that. He said, look, everything was the same before that, but after that, not so much. So you can't take these things that we see today and extrapolate them into the distant past. God's telling you, this is me speaking to you. What's the remainder of the message? If indeed his hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand stretched out the heavens and when I call them they stand up together, look, when I tell the stars to come to attention, they do so. And so he says to them, verse 14, all of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. And he shall do his pleasure in Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. He's saying, look, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to restore you. You may not see it right now. You may not understand it. You may not think it can even happen. I Even I have spoken. Yes, I've called him. I've brought him. And in his way, will prosper. Now, I want you to take a look at verse 16 with me for a moment. Come near to me and hear this. Here's God speaking to a captive people who are about to be set free. He told them they'd go into captivity. He's doing this in advance. Remember, these words were written before they actually went into captivity in Babylon. Come near to me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. I didn't speak in secret. I've told you I was the creator. I told you through the prophet Job. I told you through Moses. That's that whole Genesis 1 account's about, by the way. Now, I want you to notice who's speaking. Because it gets uber clear in verse 16. From the time that it was, what's it? The beginning. That's the it. I was there. Now you have to ask yourself the question, who's the I? Check this out. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Anybody else see the Trinity there? The Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Who's the me? That was the I that was there from the beginning. In other words, this is Jesus speaking in the Old Testament has to be the creator. He was there at the beginning. The book of Colossians declares that very plainly, by the way, that all things that were created were created through him. In fact, he holds everything together as well. The Messiah. What's the point to all this? Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm going to deliver you. Who is the I that is currently speaking? It's Messiah. It's the Christ. 
It's the babe in the manger. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's the Holy One of Israel. It's the lamb. It's the lion. It's the one who was and is and is to come. It's the one who flung the stars into space, created the earth, breathed the breath of life into man. Sent by God the Father, empowered by the Spirit, they have sent me. Remember Jesus was questioned in John chapter 8, and the Pharisees were asking him, you know, before Abraham was, I am? Hmm, strange. Isaiah says exactly the same thing. I was there at the beginning. I was there before Abraham. I know, by the way, I'm going to be there when the earth gets rolled up like a scroll. And now notice why this is important. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer. How awesome is that? The Lord differentiates himself between Father God and the Holy Spirit. He says, it's me that was the creator. And he said, oh, by the way, I am your Redeemer. Is there anyone who has ever been redeemed that was not redeemed by Jesus? The answer is no. This is messianic to the core. He's saying, look, I am Messiah. I am the Savior. I am the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, leads you by the way that you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Remember that Jesus declared himself in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Amen? So whose commandments are the commandments? They're from the Lord. They're from Jesus. You know, people often confuse this and say, oh, you know, well, the commandments, Jesus authored the commands as well. And your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. God wasn't angry with them. He loved them. He plans to redeem. He still plans to redeem the Jewish people. As secular as, as Israel is today, God has a plan to redeem them, to bring them to faith, to, re, to, to bring them into a right relationship with him. That can only happen through the blood of the Redeemer. That's why Hebrews chapter 9 declares without repeating the original command in the book of Leviticus in chapter 17, without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption. There's no remission of sin. Because you're going to have to believe in me someday. You have to give your life to me someday. If you'd only listened, you would have believed in me today. You could have been with Abraham and Lazarus. In Abraham's bosom, you, 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 that's where you can go. I'll come get you as soon as I die. In verse 19, and your descendants also would have been like the sand, the offspring of your body like the grains of the sand, his name. So obviously repeating the Abrahamic covenant. That was the covenant made with Abraham, right? I want to make you a father of nations. I want to make your descendants more numerous than the stars. Sands, his name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Go forth from Babylon, flee the Chaldeans. 
with a voice of singing, declare and proclaim this. Utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst. And when he led them through the desert, now remember where they're going to be. They're going to be in Babylon. Look on a map. Go to the center of the middle of Iraq, the Euphrates River, and see how far it is to Jerusalem and see what's out there. It is one of the largest expanses of desert in the entire world. And it's a sand desert for the most part. He led them through the desert, caused the waters to flow from the rock. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. He said, it was me that led you through the wilderness. I was the one. I'll take care of you. I am God. I created the universe. I got this. There is no peace for the Lord, says the wicked. And so he ends this by saying, look, this is who I am. This is my desire for you. This is my will for you. This is what can happen if you follow me. And the story is, they did make it out of Babylon. The story is, this this tiny remnant of people made it back to, to Jerusalem. But they would again abandon the Lord. They would turn on the one who's speaking in this passage to the prophet Isaiah, Jesus. They would cry out, we don't want this man to rule over us. Give us Barabbas. They would reject him. He came to his own, but his own knew him not, is what the scriptures record. But he still loves them. So much so that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 reminds us that one day all Israel will be saved. He's still got a plan to make good on this promise. He said, I'm going to redeem you. Now you can cast me off as much as you want, but I love you more than you hate me. One of the most beautiful characteristics of God, I believe, is that for all of our waving our hands at him and saying we don't want him, he loves us more than our rejection. He pursues us. His grace, he cries out to us. And for us, it gives us hope. Keeps us focused on the things that God has for us. No matter where we are, if we're in bondage to the Babylonians or bondage to COVID, the God that created us still loves us and has redeemed us and wants to bring us into his glorious heaven. Notice it says that he's going to cause the water to flow again. In other words, they're, they're going to be made well, restored. And for us, we get to walk with the Lord the whole time that we know him. Once we say yes to Jesus, it's a, it's a journey to heaven. Amen? And so don't, don't let the world dissuade you. Don't let the world offer you an alternative. Keep your eyes on the king. There's only room for one Lord in your life. And his name is Jesus. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together. Father, I pray if there's anybody here tonight that maybe they just came, they're visiting. 
and they've never invited you in or they've known about you. Maybe they're watching online right now. You desire that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance. That's your desire for every human being. You've declared who you are and when we look at our world, we can see your creative hands. We can see your marvelous complexity. We can see your order and structure. We can see the efforts of your information poured into the creation. We can see that you did save Israel. They're still saved. That They're a nation today is a miracle in and of itself. Much less a prospering nation. nation that is filled with wisdom and science and engineering, innovation. Lord, a nation that's prospering. Father, we thank you that you are who you say you are. We thank you that one day you're going to redeem the Jewish people as a whole. Or when they see you, Jesus, as the one whom they pierced and they worship you. Father, we thank you we can do that tonight. Bless us, fill us with your spirit. Encourage us in these times. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.